Welcome to the Weekly Standard Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Graham. With us from the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies and Weekly Standard contributor, Tom Jocelyn. Tom, it's been, without a doubt, a big week for American foreign policy, starting with the president finally coming to college to ask for the authorization to use military force. Or is, is that what he asked for? Did he ask for authorization to be allowed to not use military force? Yeah, you know, I think the document is curious. I think it's more about limiting the options the U.S. government has for, for fighting ISIS or the Islamic State than it is about granting the president the authority that he basically is already acting as if he has to commit the war, to prosecute the war against the Islamic State. I think the, the document is strange because basically President Obama says he has the he has the ability to launch airstrikes and do that sort of thing against the Islamic State, regardless of whether or not this AUMF uh, passes. And yet he very specifically goes out of his way to basically limit the involvement of ground troops, uh, U.S. ground troops, in the war. And the section that the, the, of the AO, proposed AUMF that does this uh, talks about an enduring offensive ground combat operations. Uh, it's very curious language. I don't know what enduring offensive ground combat operations are exactly. But basically he's trying to limit, or the White House is trying to limit, sort of the way the, the U.S. prosecutes this war. Is it? Anything like kinetic military actions, another phrase I was unfamiliar with before President Obama took office? Or overseas contingency operations or any one of a given uh, <laughs> phrases that we've heard over time. I think that's right. I th- you know, what, what strikes me is, is really why I keep thinking this is curious or bizarre almost is that anybody who's actually studying the situation in Iraq and Syria knows that if you really want to defeat ISIS, you're going to have to use some ground forces. You know, how many is up for debate, but you're clearly going to have to use uh, more than we have there now to really uh, do this. But one of the principal missions that those uh, U.S. forces should have is to basically back the tribes on both sides of the border, both in eastern Syria and western Iraq, which are desperately trying to rise up against ISIS and, and on the Iraq side anyway, have partnered with the U.S. before in the past uh, to beat al-Qaeda in Iraq. You know, these forces, these tribes really do need U.S. more U.S. assistance. And the, the principal uh, thing I think that the U.S. ground forces, besides fighting ISIS directly, would do if more were introduced into theater was basically bolster these tribal forces. And that, I think, is still something that's reasonable and plausible. It's, it's going to be more difficult today now than it would have been a year ago, but it's still something worth pursuing. Uh, we saw uh, in the, at the end of the week uh, push towards uh, towards Baghdad, if you will, from ISIS, more progress by ISIS inside Iraq. And I'm trying to figure out as a media consumer, and that's why, Tom, I'm glad you're with us. On the one hand, I see stories every other day, ISIS pushed back here, the, the uh, Peshmerga with the Kurds have stopped them there, they've taken back Kobani, they got him on the run, the president says we've got him on the one. On the other hand, the next day I'll wake up and ISIS will be <laughs> moving into Afghanistan or moving within 16 miles of U.S. forces. I'm, and do we have? Can you give us a sense of where we actually are in this military fight? Well, I think there are two things. I mean, one, there, there's always been a sort of natural limitation on how quickly uh, the Islamic State can expand in the region uh, because it's constrained by the Kurdish and Shiite regions where they don't have any natural base of support or any local allies to leverage in, in the fight. So they've always, there's always been a certain amount of territory that they would be able to uh, overrun, but then there are pockets and areas uh, that are controlled by Kurds and Shiites and large areas in some cases where they, they obviously have uh, severe limitations. So, you know, basically they're, they're getting kicked back out of cursed territories is important, but also that, that's, that's turf that's be tough for them to take anyway because they're going to run into uh, a stiff resistance or at least take and hold. 
Um, but the second thing is you can see in the areas where um, they're really concentrating. I think that what you're, what you're talking about is really their advances in OMBAR. I think this is really one of the more problematic things we're seeing out of the group right now because I think they understand that controlling this territory in western Iraq and eastern Syria is really key for them to be able to continue their claim to rule over a contigu- contiguous caliphate and to basically keep uh, reinforcing supplies and fighters across both borders. And this is where I really think that we're really falling behind and not doing everything that should be done to support the tribes in the area, which have been desperately trying to rise up against ISIS. Uh, there's a conversation about the uh, number of people willing to to join ISIS and fight with ISIS. And on the one hand, I'm hearing from Washington that you know their uh, d- morale is degraded, and you know no one wants to be part of ISIS anymore. They've been outed as an evil force; they're being vilified. On the other hand, the Pentagon this week said, "Oh my gosh, the people are pouring in for the chance to be part of ISIS." Uh, do you, can you tell us the truth? In other words, which storyline seems to be aligned best with the facts that are available to us to- today? Well, I think part of both stories is right. I think. Basically, things like the immolation of the Jordanian pilot, that gruesome uh, burning alive video, and other other sort of acts have always limited the broad mainstream appeal within the Muslim-majority world of ISIS. I mean, it's not something that's going to become the majority ideology or majority organization in many nations because of those types of acts. On the other hand, uh, that sort of thing does help them recruit and does help them further sort of bolster their cause amongst the young hotheads, as I call them, or foreign fighters who are sort of gravitating and itching for a fight. And that's basically what ISIS has uh, coming into Iraq and Syria that provides a a lot of uh, a big boost for their war machine. Without those sort of young fighters, without that foreign fighter facilitation network that helps them, uh, you know, basically recruit and then fill back in the ranks when they're you know, and, and resupply them with fighters. Uh, without that, they have a real hard time. And, and really, I haven't seen any dent in that recruiting network uh, as a result of what's been going on. Now, that, that may be something that could change in the future, but right now I don't see any evidence, as the Pentagon says, that uh, basically that's, that's dented at all. The uh, events in Yemen, I remember when President Obama bragged about how well we were doing in Yemen and Somalia, and there was a lot of coughing about that, but my first react, my reaction was, big deals, Yemen, Somalia. So, so what, you know, it's not as goes Yemen, so goes, you know, the Middle East. Uh, so I had the same reaction when I found out that Iranian backed, uh, you know, uh, whatever, activist terrorists, et cetera, had, you know, forced us to shut down our embassy and flee. Is it really a big deal, deal which way Yemen goes and why? Well, it is for a number of reasons, but, you know, start off by pointing out there's actually a, a very basic logical tension between. President Obama's desired policy outcomes with the Iranians uh, vis-a-vis the nuclear negotiations and the situation on the ground in Yemen and elsewhere. And in particular, basically the Iranian-backed Houthis, now the Houthis are not totally controlled by Iran, but they have received some assistance from the Iranians, have basically uh, really gravely wounded U.S. counterterrorism efforts in Yemen because basically what the U.S. has been doing is been counting on the Yemeni government as an ally to, to really shoulder most of the load in fighting al-Qaeda's insurgency in the country. And because the Houthis have overrun much of the Yemeni government's positions and really jeopardized the whole situation and compromised the Yemeni government deeply, uh, this basically takes away a key ally for the U.S. in the fight against al-Qaeda. But on the same token, President Obama thinks that the Iranians can basically be our, our, our big ally in the fight against Sunni side extremism and al-Qaeda, which I think is wrong for a lot of reasons. But the situation in Yemen underscores that fact, because really Iran is working contrary to our interests there. Now, why does this matter in the long run? Well, al-Qaeda 
it's not just about Yemen. I mean, obviously, people will point out the fact that Al-Qaeda in Peninsula has tried to attack the U.S. directly, the U.S. homeland directly, and has gotten close to launching attacks. They, of course, claim responsibility for the Charlie Hebdo massacre and other uh, acts abroad. Um, but I think it's important to keep in mind that, really, Al-Qaeda's general management team, these are the guys who oversee what Al-Qaeda's operations are <coughs> Excuse me, around most of the globe, they are based in Yemen. And, in fact, as their prospects in Yemen grow and become uh, you know, and, and they become stronger there. That only strengthens Al Qaeda's hand, really globally. I would say. So, if you had to pick one place in this map, as uh, we've now, you know, Libya, we had to basically flee Libya. We've, uh, you know, Syria lost. Uh, now Yemen. If you had to pick one place on the map and say, Mr. President, the United States, let's focus here. And if we can start winning here, it will have the most ef- positive effect across the rest of the region, where would you send us, Tom? Well, I think the, the two key battlefields really remain um, Afghanistan, where, of course, people, where the U.S. is trying to draw down its forces, and, of course, Iraq and Syria. Really, you know, those, these are the two post-9-11 wars that were fought, um, and, and, you know, they still remain the key battlefields to this day against jihadism. Um, you know, and obviously there's always been controversy over the Iraq war, much more so than the Afghan war, but... The, the, tr- the truth of the matter is that both of those battlefields were identified by the jihadists as sort of the central fronts against the U.S. and our allies, and they remain those central fronts today. And unless we're going to take a stand and fight them in those places and make sure that they can't win in the long run, uh, we're going to have a real problem on our hands for, I think, uh, a long time to come. Tom Joslin, thanks so much for your time for this podcast. We appreciate it. Thanks, Michael. You've been listening to the Weekly Standard Podcast. Please be sure to check weeklystandard.com regularly for podcast updates. I'm your host, Michael Graham.